Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 205th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Marina Hernandez. Marina is the founder of Swiss American Wealth Advisors, an independent RIA with offices in Philadelphia and Switzerland that specializes in working with cross-border Swiss American expatriates. What's unique about Marina, though, is the way her specialized niche allows her to command sizable financial planning fees, working primarily with otherwise hard-to-work-with next-generation clients, while facing remarkably little competition at all, by focusing on not just cross-border expatriate clients, but specifically those expatriates going just between the U.S. and Switzerland. In this episode, we talk in depth about what makes the niche of cross-border planning for expatriates so unique and so complex the challenges from potential double taxation of foreign country retirement accounts that the U.S. doesn't recognize for favorable tax treatment, how the rising focus on preventing money laundering and foreign tax cheats has created new layers of specialized tax reporting that expatriates must handle or face $10,000 fines from the U.S. government, and why even seemingly simple publicly traded investments to hold a diversified portfolio in a foreign country can create significant additional U.S. tax challenges. We also talk about how Marina is structuring her advisory business, why she chose to break away from an existing advisory firm to start her own practice, the reason she affiliated with a larger firm, Dynamic Wealth Advisors, to provide her own back office RA support and get her access to multiple RA custodial platforms, the software tool she uses to do financial planning with her expatriate clients, and why despite the fact that her value hinges on solving the especially complex problems her clients face, Marina's financial planning process is actually very efficient because her specialization has allowed her to develop repeatable expertise. And be certain to listen to the end, where Marina shares her journey in finding her cross-border expatriate niche, how her need to handle her own family's taxes as an expatriate living in London made her aware of the unique complexities for Americans living overseas, how the combination of CFP marks and enrolled agent license and her experience on international tax issues meant that she had three job offers out to her within just a few months of joining the Financial Planning Association and Network for Career Opportunities, and why Marina is taking the barbell approach to serving the marketplace with a premium financial planning fee for her most complex clients, but then also offering free financial education classes for cross-border citizens who may also need help and may not be able to afford her premium services. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Marina Hernandez. Welcome, Marina Hernandez, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited about today's discussion and what I think is a, a really interesting niche and, and focus specialization that you have, working with cross-border clients and and like particular cross-border clients, like uh, Swiss citizens who are living in the U.S. and U.S. citizens who are are living in Switzerland, which I I think is like, you know, we measure that in the tens of thousands of people, but like, but, but only the tens of thousands of people out of like tens of millions of immigrants and hundreds of millions of people in the, in the country. And so in, in this world, I feel like so many of us as financial advisors 
have kind of this compulsion to make sure that we, we like we cast the net wide enough that we we pick a group we're going after that has like a big enough base of of clients that we can be certain to to grow and have a successful practice that I'm fascinated with firms like yours that specialize down to this realm of of like we work that with not even just like cross border clients and 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 expatriates but like expats just with this one particular country that goes back and forth with the US and that you can build an entire practice an entire specialization by just getting down to that level of focus specificity and then finding all the opportunity that comes with getting down to that level of specificity. So in, in in a world where I feel like there's so much challenge these days for advisors saying sometimes like, okay, I've kind of heard I, I should go after a niche, but I don't know what niche to go after that's big enough that I'll have enough opportunities to to be successful. I'm just, I'm really excited to hear the journey for you into yours of like, let's make a business where we only work with people who are going back and forth between the US and Switzerland. Like you, you didn't even big up, pick a bigger European country. Like we went after Switzerland. So like, how does this come about that you say, I'm, I'm going to have this kind of focused level of, of niche specialization? Well, it came about accidentally, and I think that's probably how it works for most people. I jumped into the industry after owning a tax firm for about six years where I was providing services. I'm an immigrant in the United States. I wasn't born or raised here. And I understood the challenges of living outside your country and how complex our tax system was. So I developed a specialization in international tax. And when I was in my practice as a tax advisor, I would see really bad things that I had to report on the tax returns that they were recommendations from their financial advisors. That made me curious about what financial advisors do. And so I eventually became aware of the CFP program and I became a certified financial planner and I wanted to start in the industry. And because I had zero experience in it, because I didn't grow up here, I didn't really know the industry. I felt that what was being taught in the curriculum and the certified financial planner, that's the way it was. It sounds a lot like independent advisors. So I imagine everybody was independent advisor. So that's how I felt it was. And because I was an international tax, it felt natural to do something with that has to do with the U.S. cross-border. So cross-border was that one of the borders was the U.S. and another one was a different country. But initially, I felt that it didn't have to be a specific other country. So it started with any other country. And I was born and raised in Argentina, so a natural area was U.S.-Argentina cross-border, but there's very few Argentinians in the United States, so it's not a very big market there. And I am of Spanish descent. My father is Spanish, so U.S.-Spain was another one. There's more Americans that go to Spain to retire. And the U.S.-Switzerland came about because I became a member of FPA, the Financial Planning Association, as I was studying. It was a recommendation of one of my professors when I was doing the CFP certification. He recommended that we join the Financial Planning Association and start reading the listserv with all the questions so that we it would make us aware what the issues were. And what I noticed is that certified financial planners were not very good at tax in general. And people were trying to be helpful when others had questions, especially in cross-border international tax. And they would give answers that maybe didn't really contemplate everything. 
And eventually what happened is that a few certified financial plans will read my answers and say, oh, she really knows her stuff. I am in the cross-border niche and I need somebody in my team with that set of skills. So I, I started receiving calls from different financial advisory firms that were in the cross-border and I ended up joining a firm that specialized in U.S. Switzerland. So that's why it's U.S. Switzerland. I have no natural connection otherwise to that niche. It's just that my first job after doing uh, freelance work for a few other cross-border firms was at this firm. And for almost six years, I was working exclusively with Americans living in Switzerland and uh, with Swiss nationals living in the U.S. And it was very clear that I had a kind of like a cultural affinity with the people that make that choice. I really enjoy what I was doing, and 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 that's why I started becoming studying the Swiss side of things, and then becoming really, really good and going really, really deep in the more common issues that appear in that niche. And that's why when I decided to leave and start my own firm, I decided that the way I could contribute the most value to client was to continue to work in that specific niche where I had developed that expertise that allowed me to solve problems at a level that other advisors that were more general couldn't do. Can you talk about that a little bit further? Just this, what does it mean to have, I guess, cr- cross-border expertise or cross-border expertise down to a down to a particular country? You know, not that we're necessarily trying to do a continuing education cr- session on international tax law or anything, but just all right, I think the challenge for some of us advisors, if we don't, if we don't work in this realm already, like I'm not even sure a lot of us know all the things that you deal with on a regular basis that makes your practice so different and unique because it's so different from what we do that these may not even be issues on our radar screen in the first place. So can you maybe share a little of like what what is it that makes cross-border planning or cross-border tax planning? I don't even know if it's tax centric or just planning in general. Like, what is it that you're dealing with that makes your work so different and unique? So, what it is is what's very unique about the United States. And I became aware of that not as a US immigrant. I married an American and then I became a US person. And when I was married to this American and I was a US person, we moved to London to work for two years as a family. And so I was a U.S. expat <laughs> under that situation. And what I found out that I wasn't aware of at the time, this was 2002 and 2003 when this happened, was that the United States continued to tax its citizens and their winker holders as if they were still living in the U.S. No other country does that. No other country taxes its citizens based on citizenship. They tax the residents based on the residency. There's some exceptions. So what's unique as an advisor when you are helping clients in the situation is that you need to understand what is the base because generally speaking, the foreign country will have the first right of taxation than anything that is sourced to this country. So if they're working there, their compensation, their wages will be sourced to the country where the American lives. And then the United States comes and imposes a second layer of tax. So you have a risk of double taxation. You have all all kinds of issues of countries taxing people differently. When we lived in England, for example, a challenge was that England has a fiscal year for taxes. And so it goes from April 6th to April 5th of every year. And the U.S. has a calendar year for taxes. 
So your your taxation years don't even overlap. Oh, so they they don't <laughs> yeah they don't even they don't even line up. It's not it's not just a like okay I paid this in in the UK in in 2019 and I paid this in the US in 2019 and then maybe I get a foreign tax credit from from the UK to the US. Like you can't even line them up because the 2019 US tax year actually spans eight months of the like FY 2019. UK tax year and four months of the 2018 UK tax year that spilled over. Exactly. And so the things don't even match. You're looking at different things in the return, different income, <laughs> income from different periods. It creates all sorts of challenges. And at the time, we have three very young children. This career is my fourth career, so I'm a career changer. I was working in corporate finance at the time. Coca-Cola was my employer. I have three very young children and I was absolutely miserable. So I ended up quitting my job and becoming a full-time mom for seven years. But my entire life I had worked. I didn't know what it was like to be a stay-at-home parent. So I had to do other things such as being with little kids. My kids were three, one and a half and two months old when that happened. So it was a bit of a challenge. I also needed some something more adult to look into. And that's when I started looking into the, our taxes because my husband was so frustrated. I don't understand what this is. And by the way, my husband is an international tax attorney. <laughs> it's just that he does corporate tax. He doesn't do individual taxes. So he says, I don't even understand what this is. This is super complicated, so frustrating. So for me, it started as a hobby back in the early 2000s. And once I learned and I understood some of the issues, that's also when internet groups for experts were starting. It was dial-up back in 2002 in England. So it, was, it wasn't very dynamic. But I started to be able to answer questions of other people. And so that's when I understood that I wasn't alone in having these problems and how valuable to have somebody who can help you would be. And so that's really what's unique when, when you, and then when you expand it to financial planning, you not only have the issue of the two tax systems, you also have the issue of the two financial systems. So you have different securities laws, you have different compliance rules, you have different uh, investment products that are offered in each country that the other country may or may not recognize. So you have all kinds of conflicts that make the job exponentially more complicated than it is for somebody that's only dealing with purely domestic U.S. issues. And I guess that's that's part of the reason as well that you end up picking a particular country to do cross-border work with because each possible pairing of going from country A to country B creates its own issues. Or like if you're a U.S.-U.K. expat, you've got this, the years don't line up thing, but you may not have that issue in other countries that still use a calendar year as their as their tax year, but they'll have whatever their other peculiar issues are that are specific to that country. So you just get so much specific stuff between particular country A and particular country B that that's part of what leads you to, I'm just going to specifically focus in this particular cross-border combination and not even just expatriate clients in general. Absolutely. Yes. That's exactly, it's exactly what you said. For example, with, with, if we stay with the UK, not only do you need to understand the legal and tax system and financial system of the country, you also need to understand the tax treaties. So with the UK, you have the non-matching tax years, but you do have very comprehensive tax treaties between the UK and the US. 
that mitigate a lot of the issues that you do not have when you're dealing with countries that do not have tax treaties with the U.S. or that have treaties that are not as comprehensive as the U.K.-U.S. treaty. And so let me give you an example that is typical. When you go and work in the foreign country, you have a foreign employer and that, that country is going to have their own retirement plans, their own retirement system that is written under, um, under the tax laws in the same manner that we have 401ks, for example, and IRAs in the U.S., 403Bs. All those are sections of the code. Well, the equivalent of that exists in every country. And so the foreign employer will set up a retirement account for the American working in the country following their own rules. And the U.S. gives special privileges to U.S. retirement accounts like 401ks that they're tax deferred, for example, and you get a deduction for the contributions, but they have to meet the requirements of our own tax laws. Obviously, foreign retirement plans are not going to care one bit about the U.S. tax law requirements, so they don't meet them. Therefore, the default is that your contributions to your foreign pension are not going to be deductible on your U.S. tax return, that the earnings in the foreign pension are not going to be deferred on your U.S. tax return. And that creates all kinds of issues. If you have a tax treaty, some of those issues might be mitigated. If you really understand the tax laws and see how can you can apply it in a way to minimize the, the negative impact, you can do a good job to help your clients. But absence of a, of a tax treaty, and many times with the tax treaty have very poor provisions for retirement accounts, you can have really serious issues with clients that they feel that there's no tax advantage way for them to save for retirement because the U.S. denies them that by not recognizing the foreign retirement accounts as qualified, as the equivalence to U.S. qualified plans. Interesting. So you really still get into a lot of, I guess what I would call sort of classic financial planning issues, right? Retirement planning, insurance, investments, tax, like it's a lot of the same things. It's just all the additional layers of complexity of country B may not have the same structures and rules and products and offerings that that the U.S. has. And you get literally the complications of being a citizen in A that owns things in country B uh-huh. when A may not recognize the stuff that's going on in, in country B. And so now we get into is there a tax treaty? How does that tax treaty work if there's not a tax treaty? What the heck is the consequence when my foreign country employer adds money to their equivalent of a tax-deferred profit-sharing plan, but the U.S. doesn't recognize it? And so now my money is tied up in the foreign country's retirement plan, but I still have to pay taxes on it in U.S. dollars, which I may not have the cash for because they put the money in the foreign retirement plan. (laughs) Now I've got this snowball effect of problems that are coming up of okay, I really think I need to find a financial advisor who knows how this stuff works. And imagine trying to help a client, trying to help clients in the combinations with that type of problems with every country. And you can see how it can get enormous, the amount of knowledge that you have to have very quickly. That if you do not choose a country to work with or specialize in, and, you, and, and I saw this mostly from the tax world because I was an international tax first. So I, I had tax preparation clients that were Americans living in any country in the world. And they would say, I have a, and describe some foreign thing, a long foreign word that sometimes was impossible to pronounce. How do I report that in the U.S.? 
Like, I don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let me research this. So is it an insurance policy? Is it a pension? Is it a brokerage account? Is it a type of entity? What is it? And you have to spend maybe tens of hours just researching, trying to figure out what the thing is. And many times it doesn't fit exactly with anything in the U.S. So you're not even sure after doing a lot of research what would be the most similar U.S. equivalent classification for that particular item. And if you have to be doing that with every possible type of product that is sold anywhere in the world, you can see how difficult it would be to have that type of knowledge. So if you don't have it and you're working with clients everywhere, then you spend a ton of time doing research just to be able to answer a basic question. Whether somebody comes to me now with with a Swiss product, I know immediately what it is. I don't have to go and do the research to find out what it is. And I also know immediately what the issues that an American with that product will have. Which makes an interesting point to me around the the powerful efficiency you start getting when you've got particularly this kind of niche specialization where I feel like there's sort of, there is a finite body of knowledge to learn, right? At some point, you've pretty much seen almost all the usual things that come up for U.S.-Swiss cross-border expatriates. And and pretty much anything that comes in is old hat and, and you've learned it and know how to deal with it. So at some point you just get to a a level of, okay, almost any advisor, air quotes, could deal with this client, but like it'll take them 10 or 20 or 30 hours to figure out what you can literally just answer in five minutes. Because this is the 17th client you've seen that has this problem and you already know exactly exactly, exactly what to do and how it works. So you, you can just literally serve them cheaper and more effectively not that you charge less like you can charge a lot more but it's just gonna it's gonna be two hours at your high billable rate and stuff someone else's 20 hours at some other rate which i would think means eventually you you just end out with a sheer cost advantage in being able to serve the clients in your niche as well as just the the depth of expertise and, and kind of the the rightness of answers because you've done it enough times that you probably really really researched it what you can do is you can build a more efficient practice. And if you build a more efficient practice, then you can have more clients. You can serve more clients. And not only can you serve more clients, you can serve them better. So you can generate more value for the clients. So for the clients, then it becomes obvious that you are the advisor that they need to go to if there's a problem between the U.S. and Switzerland. That's where my aspiration is. If somebody is has a U.S. and Swiss cross-border issue, they're going to say the person I need to talk to, the one who can help me is Marina. And so I spend all the time developing that expertise. And another challenge, Michael, when you're researching foreign products is that many times the information is in a foreign language. (laughs) And if you don't speak the language, you cannot even find information about it. It's very difficult. So in Switzerland, they speak three languages, supposedly four, but I haven't met a single person that speaks the fourth language. But most of it is German. So the written is is German-German, but they speak Swiss German orally. I don't speak a word of Swiss German. They also speak French and they speak Italian. I can read and understand documents in French and Italian because I studied French for five years when when I was young. And it's very similar to Spanish, which is my native language. And Italian, because everybody in Argentina is of Italian descent. So <laughs> you end up picking up on it. And it's very it's similar. Once you know French and Spanish, you can pick up a lot of things and make sense of the written 
right? In the on the passive sense, not on the active sense. I will never pretend that I can speak Italian, no way. But if you don't speak any foreign language, you cannot do it. And that brings to another point. In my business, I have a partner who's Swiss and how he is a native Swiss German speaker. And he's the person that now can go and do the research on anything that goes on the on that is on the Swiss side. Also, when you're Swiss, you learn to speak at least one other of the official languages in Switzerland. So he can also do research in French. And that also gives us another advantage. So when you are only speaking English, it's going to be limited to how much you can really learn about the other side because it's not going to be translated into English for your convenience. So how does this work having like a compatriot on the other side who is who is Swiss? I mean, is that literally like there is a like there is joint ownership of the firm where you own part of it and your Swiss compatriot owns part of it, or is this just you've got a U.S. firm, the other person has a a Swiss firm, and you just kind of cross refer clients and collaborate with each other? But you've got your firm and they got their firm. So this is part of what I do as my job. So when I had to do it for myself, I said, "Oh, this is good, and I can apply my own knowledge." I was say, like, there's probably a good. <laughs> Multinational corporation tax research question here. Exactly. So the way we do is he has his own entity in Switzerland. I have my own in the U.S. And then we have an operating agreement between the two of us. But our clients, we have the, we use the same DBA, which is Swiss American Wealth Advisors. And every client of, the, of Swiss American Wealth Advisors is a client of our business. So we don't have his clients and my clients. They're all our clients. One of our, uh, the things that we wanted to do to make sure is that to provide a firm that works for the clients and not a specific individual being the advisor for the client. Because the reason I partner with my business partner, who's, his name is Jeff, by the way, Jeff Heindel, is because he has a set of skills that is very different from mine, completely complementary. So I come from the tax world and he comes from the investment world. So I'm an enrolled agent and a certified financial planner, and I have an accounting degree and I have an MBA in corporate finance. So my knowledge is very business and tax based. And he is a, a CFA. So he is the person that really can understand and analyze securities and help build the portfolios, understand how to construct portfolios, how the different asset classes in the portfolio will interact, how can we best achieve the goals for the clients. And that is something that I cannot do anywhere near as well as him. And he has decades of experience doing that. And so us working together made a lot of sense because he has a superpower, which is he can speak Swiss German, which is really convenient when you have to solve Swiss issues with clients that I will never, no matter how hard I work, I will never be a Swiss German speaker. It's an impossible language. But also the fact that he's in the ground in Switzerland, he can develop a network there and that he has skills that are very complementary. It allows us to serve the clients so much better than even if I try to, even in my own niche, if I try to do it completely on my own. Interesting. And so functionally, is it like, I realize it's, it's technically two entities with a crossover operating agreement, but it sounds like you, you treat clients as clients, the firm. Does that mean you, you effectively run like an ensemble style practice where the dollars go into one pool and you both get paid your you know salaries and profits out of the pool? Or is it still sort of a Marina's got Marina's clients on this side and Jeff's got Jeff's clients on that side? No, the, the clients are the clients of the firm and we have, it's like an ensemble. 
So the way you're describing it is like an ensemble. And we just started because we started in July. So we're in November. <laughs> so this is very recent. And so far we're, we're paying all the startup expenses. So we haven't had to deal with in practice how we're going to be making the distributions because that hasn't happened yet. But the clients are all of our clients. We pay all of the expenses. Everything is U.S.-based for the most part. So all the the fees come in the U.S. This is something that we'll probably want to touch on later on, but we are affiliated with Dynamic Wealth Advisors, and that's a really interesting story that it might be worth talking about. It's a U.S. SEC registered RIA from in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're about investment advisor representatives in that firm. And the clients, when they sign the agreements, they sign it with me as the investment advisor representative and Dynamic Wealth Advisors as the RIA. And so everything flows first to Dynamic Wealth Advisors, then to my entity in the U.S., and then all the expenses come from the U.S., and then we split it on the other end with the Swiss entity. And so that's the the operating agreement piece is what pulls U.S.-based dollars and income kind of over to the Swiss side for Jeff. Exactly. Yes. So Jeff really has to trust me that I'm going to honor the operating agreement. <laughs> it requires a lot of trust also to operate in a cross-border world. So I do want to come back to kind of the, the setup structure and, and more about dynamic wealth advisors. But help me understand how the the business model works. Like just how do you charge clients? Is this still an assets under management style structure where you're you're charging AUM fees for clients with a certain level of affluence and just you happen to work with cross-border clients and give them a whole bunch of additional cross-border tax and other advices as part of the holistic relationship? Or is this more of a a pay-for-time hourly style structure where just you've got this deep expertise around taxes and other cross-border issues and they come and buy however many hours of your time it takes to get to the answer of whatever challenges they're facing? How does the business model work in this structure, particularly when you know, dollars may be in multiple different countries. So we do not do hourly financial planning. It's just too much complexity in the admin side for that to make it worth financially for us. So for people who need help and have maybe a limited problem, there's a public benefit arm that we do that we provide free financial education. So we solve it on that end. For with the clients, what we have is because they're, we do provide, we are financial planning centric. We consider ourselves wealth advisors. So everything is based on looking on the financial planning first. And then how we do investment management is how it ties to the overall picture of all the different puzzle pieces that a client has all over the world. So we have three levels of service. And in order to account for the fact that we have to do very detailed planning work that is time-consuming and difficult, we have a minimum annual fee. And that minimum annual fee is tied to an AUM fee. So the clients would pay the minimum annual fee or the AUM fee, whichever is higher. So that allows us to serve clients that have a lot of complex financial planning needs that may not have any assets or may not have, or may have very limited assets that we can manage. Because that can happen when you have clients who live overseas for example, in Switzerland, the percentage of the wages that goes to the mandatory 
occupational pension, which is the equivalent of the 401k, is mandatory. And the minimum contributions that are mandatory is a very high percentage of the salary compared to the U.S. So many times clients don't even have the ability to save much outside of that. And we cannot manage those accounts because they have to follow Swiss rules and it's super conservative. And that has to be managed by the trust fund that was created by the employer. And so sometimes there's no assets. And we also work with a lot of millennials. We like to work with millennials and Gen X, although we do have older clients. The majority of our clients tend to be younger. That's when they move around. Relocations is, tends to be one of the reasons why we get the most referrals or the most people reaching out to us because they're leaving the U.S. going to go to Switzerland or the reverse. And that's the triggering event for many of them. And so we needed to have a way to serve them even when they didn't have assets for us to manage, but that we also compensated us for the time and for the value that we were providing with our advice during that transition. And so what do you end up setting as a, a minimum fee? Like what do, what do you have to put that level at just to make it work for the firm given the amount of complexity that's involved? So our, our lowest level, so we have three levels of service and the lowest we call it young professional and the minimum fee is $6,000 a year. Then we have a, a professional family service level. The young professional is mostly for single people that are employed. So they have the cross-border complexity. For them, it's absolutely complex and overwhelming. But for us, they're the easiest problems to solve because they're very standard. So we can uh, deliver a ton of value without having to charge a lot in fees to the clients because we have a system in place that allows us to do that very efficiently. The moment that you have a family and now you're starting to add another spouse with issues and potentially assets in multiple countries, it becomes more complex. So that level of service, it's called professional family, has a $12,000 minimum fee. And then the final level of service that we provide, which is my favorite and which is, is I think is the one where we can provide the most value. We call it virtual family office. And in there, we deal with more complex issues when our clients need coordination with many different types of advisors in many different countries because either they have their entrepreneurs, so they have a cross-border business like we are, or because they have trust structures that they have to deal with. And an interesting thing about Switzerland is that it doesn't have its own trust laws. People find fascinating that so there's no such there's no such thing as a Swiss trust, and so how does Switzerland deal with a U.S. trust, which is a very common structure that you find in in, in in U.S. planning for estate purposes and for family purposes? So that creates a lot of complexity, and you really need to have very specialized knowledge to deal with that. And the other cases, we sometimes we have multi generational families that we advise. So we have families that have maybe adult children that need advice. They're also cross border, or they have you know the parents. So we're dealing with multiple generations. So it's a lot more complex. And that minimum fee for that is twenty thousand dollars. And what we're doing there is we're basically taking away the burden of the coordination because we are the ones who can speak the language that each the individual advisors speak and understand what they're saying and communicate what's important to the client. And, and we also have the technical knowledge to understand and we see the entirety of the client situation where the different advisors would only see a piece. And when you only see a piece of the puzzle, you might be giving advice that makes sense for your piece, but it might not fit well with the other piece. So we are the ones that can detect those type of situations and help everything work seamlessly. I'm struck by this as well, just 
on the most basic level. Like when when we talk about, you know, it's so hard to work with quote unquote young people, which in our industry is basically like anybody under 50, otherwise known as Gen X and Gen Y. You know, we tend to talk about Gen X and Gen Y in terms of, you know, maybe they can use a robo advisor and and you know, and the robo advisor can get their you know, $17 a month of of investment fees on a small account or whatever it comes out to be. I'm I just I'm I'm fascinated that you've got this this model that starts at six thousand dollars a year for a single, you know, younger client, twelve thousand dollars for for a couple with family. That you know, you're just you're you're talking about a pretty darn healthy level of of fees and revenue per client for quote unquote working with young people or working with young professionals. Right. But one thing that happens for a young professional that goes overseas is that they cannot use a robo-advisor because they have international accounts and they're not licensed to provide services to Americans living abroad. So that's not a possibility. And so then they have to have their retail accounts and do their own investment management, which for some people that is terrifying and they don't want to do it. Other people like doing it. But then you have the issues of the compliance laws and securities laws and, and the client protection laws in the in Europe that might limit what you can do at the retail level when, when you manage your own accounts. And to give you an example, Switzerland is not part of the European Union, so luckily we don't have to deal with this problem. But what happens in the European Union is they have regulations that are MIFID II and PREPS and KID and all these things that basically don't permit you to invest in foreign funds. So if you're an American living in the EU, the EU may not allow you to have a U.S. investment account and invest in U.S. mutual funds or ETFs. Well, you can never invest in U.S. mutual funds because of other issues. So even the U.S. won't allow you to do that. So then you try to say, oh, I'm I'm living in France and I'm going to open a Schwab account and do my own investments. Uh, Nope, you live in France, it's not available to you. France says you can only invest in French funds. While French funds have a problem for an American because they're considered passive foreign investment companies, PFIX, and they're taxed extremely punitively. And there's nothing you can do about mitigating that. I mean, there's some choices, some elections that you can do to reduce the cost of that. But what you do is mitigate the tax inefficiency, but it's still going to be tax inefficient. And so you lose a lot of, it ends up being a very costly way to build wealth. So your ability to build wealth gets greatly diminished by all the fees and by all the complexities and all the restrictions. Which again, just gets back to, this is why this is often a niche, not just of working with international expatriates, but literally down to particular country pairings from from A to B and all the crazy things that happen with that specific overlap. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the other notable thing to this as well, just... When you talk particularly about younger professionals that may be expatriates, I mean, I guess I'm sure there's some subset of people that just decide like, hey, I want to live in a foreign country for a period of time and I'll try to figure out how to go there, get a work visa and, and work there. But I would imagine in practice, just you know, you're, you're working with a lot of people who are at some kind of large corporation that has an international presence that says, hey, you know, you're going to you're going to get a stint to be posted in our office overseas in in Switzerland in country of choice and you know corporations generally don't send their entry level employees into overseas expatriate jobs like it's it tends to be the 
the higher levels of expertise, the higher levels of leadership, in essence, like the higher paying jobs. So I would imagine as well that just the nature of working with expatriate clients being posted overseas from the US to Switzerland or from the Switzerland to the US, you know, they may not necessarily have significant assets because they're younger or they're still wealth building or it's tied up in country-specific vehicles that don't translate to the other side. But they're probably often pretty healthy income clients. We're just literally paying $6,000 a year, $12,000 a year out of their income is not necessarily a, a burdensome fee for their income level. That's right. So when you have expats, they're typically going to be, particularly when it's U.S. Switzerland, is going to be IT or biotech. And so the salaries tend to be higher. And so for the clients, the fee generates so much more value than, it, than the cost that it's just not even a question for them that they see the value. One mistake on your U.S. tax return with an offshore account can result in an automatic penalty of $10,000. Just because of all the special foreign account reporting you have to do because the uh, U.S. is trying to find money laundering and all those. Exactly. They have all these rules and they apply to you even if you live abroad, although that's not really who they're after. But the rules are written in such a way that they also apply to you. So they're very scared about making mistakes and not knowing what to do with their taxes or with their retirement accounts can end up resulting in causing double taxation. So then they're paying, they're losing a lot more by not having the advice than any fee that you would charge them. But going back to your point, something that I wanted to mention that I think is very interesting in the value side, most of our clients are academics and teachers don't make a lot of money. And so it usually surprises because people expect or assume that we're going to have a super earning or super wealthy clients. So we do have obviously high earners and we do have clients that are on a path of building significant wealth because of the jobs and their career. And they tend to be very motivated people. So not only do companies, multinational companies send their higher level people, they send their best higher level people abroad. So we're dealing with very, very sharp clients mostly, which is, makes it for me fascinating to work. I love working with intelligent people, with people that have a very interesting perspective. But there's a lot of people that are abroad that don't have a lot of wealth, but they do have the same level of problems. And if I, if you are going to save them fifteen dollars or $25,000 and that's going to cost them six, well, obviously they're going to do it because they're going to be $19,000 ahead. So you can provide so much value that the fee that would seem very high or unreasonable for somebody in the U.S. because they can get a lot of the information uh, maybe online and they're, they're the kind of person who are willing to take the risk to do it themselves is, is not the same way perception when you are abroad. And like I said, mo the most common occupation that we have is international school teachers. And they really see the value and the help that we can provide, even though their salaries are higher than teachers in the U.S., but they're not what you would consider, you know, high earning. And I am struck as well. You you had said uh, that you have some like a, a you know a, a public benefit education arm side of the the business. So can you talk more about that for a moment? So I didn't have a lot of money growing up and I had to make very difficult decisions about money. And I have this awareness that usually the people who need the most help feel that they cannot afford it. 
because of that, because they have to make difficult choices of how they're going to spend the next dollar or the next peso or whatever the currency is. And so when I decided that I was going to start my own firm, I wanted to be part of the goal to to build a firm that provided, that made people's lives better and that understood that its role was to provide a benefit, not just to our clients, but also a commitment to our employees to create a good environment for them, but also for the community in which we operate. And so that understanding of the need, because I, I felt that it was in that situation of people who don't have the financial resources to get help because they cannot afford, they really, it would be very difficult for them to afford the $6,000 fee, for example, that there's something out there. And so Pennsylvania has a type of entity that is called Pennsylvania Benefit Companies and Pennsylvania Benefit Corporations. So the company, if it's an LLC, a corporation, if it's a corp. And so from when I organized the firm, I organized it as the Pennsylvania Benefit company. So I made the commitment from the get-go. It's a voluntary designation. You don't have to choose it to not only provide, have a profit motivation in a business, but also to have a motivation to provide a specific public benefit. And so that's, that's really how that came about. So is that similar to, to a B corporation, which I know some some people also talk about in this context? Right. So it's, it's, it's very similar, but in the reverse, in the sense that with the B Corps, it, and I don't know if other states have the benefit company. So ours is not B Corp, but it's a benefit company. Or, or in Pennsylvania, as I said, you can have a benefit corporation. So with a B Corp, my understanding is that you start your company and you want it to have that certification because you, you, you want to be a force for good in the world. And so you want to make a commitment to all your stakeholders. So you seek that designation and you have to demonstrate certain standards that you're meeting certain standards and then you get certified. In Pennsylvania, it's kind of the reverse. You, you say that that's your intention from the get-go and then you have to file an annual report explaining how you met those standards. So there's an independent third party that you measure yourself to see how you're doing in the industry with respect to the treatment of your employees, to your clients and your community. And also you detail what specific public benefits you provided and your efforts to provide those. And you have to publish that every year and you have to file it with the Department of State in the state. So you get it automatically, but you can lose it if you don't actually do it. Whether... In the, in the B Corp, it's the reverse. You have to request it. And is there a tax or other benefit to this, or just kind of a thing you put out there to say that you're doing it for the, for the goodwill of the community? There's no tax benefit. They get taxed exactly the same way as any okay. other type of company. So you don't do it for tax benefits. You do it because you want to make the world a little better. And so you're making that commitment that you're going to pay attention to what benefits all your stakeholders. And so in practice, what is the, I guess, what is the public benefit corporation side of the business do? I mean, like, what are you actually doing in this world of we put out free education? We created a separate brand for it. So it's called the Cross-Border Planner and the Cross-Border Academy. And just because we wanted to make it separated completely from the, from the perception of the people receiving the services, completely separated from the business so that it wouldn't look like we were trying to do marketing and pretending to do, <laughs> to provide a public benefit. And that's why it has complete separate identity. So it's a weekly newsletter 
that I provide tax advice and, well, I don't know if I would call it tax advice, tax information, tax education. That's the weekly newsletter that comes out every Wednesday. I started it right as the pandemic came about and the CARES Act was passed because unlike many legislations in the U.S., with the CARES Act, they remember that there are Americans who live abroad and there were benefits that actually were available for Americans abroad. But I know how difficult it is to get that information if you're not working with an advisor. So I wanted to put it out there just to make sure that every American that was entitled to the economic impact payment, which is actually most people refer to the stimulus check, that they received it. And there were certain things that they could do and that, of course, are special challenges when you're abroad and how to receive it as a direct debit instead of a check if you didn't have a U.S. account, how to make sure that you're qualifying, what are the steps that you need to take, do your children qualify. So there was a huge opportunity to provide education there. So that's the planner side, which is the newsletter. And the other side, the Cross-Border Academy, what we do is we do free tax and financial education webinars. So there's a lot of organizations abroad, like, for example, the American Women's Clubs and other types of clubs of Americans living abroad, that they're social organizations to just provide the, the sense of community. And they also want to provide services to their members. These are all non-for-profit, all these types of groups. So we offer, we would offer webinars for the members to educate them about the different issues. You know, this reminds me, we had another guest on the podcast just about a month ago, uh, Morgan Richard, and, and your approach rem- kind of reminds me of hers as well, that you know, she had what I've, I kind of call the, the barbell approach of, we're going to work with a subset of, of higher income or more affluent clients that pay a pretty, a pretty sizable minimum fee. And, and just kind of powers the economics of the business. And then that lets us do a, a broader, like a, a wide reach, high impact, free educational service at the other end. So we can reach lots and lots of people who can't afford the you know, fairly sizable fees that we've set for the core clients that we serve. But as opposed to what a lot of advisors do, which is kind of reduce their minimums or regularly compromise their minimums and end out and kind of a deadly middle of serving lots of clients that aren't necessarily profitable, but they're paying for something and you got to do the work for them of, of sort of separating it out into this barbell approach that, that you've got, there's these opposite extremes of, you know, we're going to try charge a full size fee for our high value clients where we deliver a lot of value and that's a healthy dollar amount that pays the bills. And that gives us then a little bit of additional flexibility to say, no, no, we're not going to like scale back our minimums and and work with clients that maybe aren't a good fit because we just want to help them. We're going to go all the way to the other extreme and do completely free stuff that has a really wide reach and can help lots and lots of people, but just keep it at the separate opposite end of the barbell from, but here's the stuff we actually get paid for and it starts at $6,000 a year. Exactly. Yes, because it's so tempting to when somebody says, oh, I really need your help, but I cannot pay your fee to give a discount. And then you find yourself in a situation where you're overworked and undercompensated and you say, let's just give it up. This is, I can't keep doing this. Whether I feel I need to have the type of discipline, one of the things that I've been trying to get better at is being more disciplined about the goals that I'm trying to achieve. And for me, it's really important to give back to the community. I believe in sharing prosperity that's better for everybody. So by having the the benefit company, we have a specific budget of time and of money to fund that goal. 
And so how can we best use the time and that money to reach the most people in the most impactful way? And in the meantime, we are completely devoted our paying clients to provide extraordinary service to them. So they want to continue to be your clients and we have a a healthy, profitable business that then can fund those initiatives. And it's a win-win for everybody. So help me understand a little bit more about like where all this tax expertise to do all this crazy international tax stuff comes from in the first place. Like, how do you learn all this stuff to become international tax expert or like US Swiss expatriates international tax expert? <laughs> so it started be- because I had the problem. So as I mentioned earlier, when we were living in London and I left my job, all of a sudden I was raising three children and I didn't have any like intellectual adult pursuit anymore because I was no longer working for a very demanding multinational company. And so I found myself with free time. So I started researching as a hobby. So it started as a hobby. Between 2002 and 2008, I was a full-time mom. But I did a lot of studying on my own time as a hobby because I'm a tax nerd. I'm a nerd. And so tax became my thing where I became a nerd. And as I mentioned at the beginning earlier on, I think my husband is an international tax attorney. So I asked him, like, if I want to get really good at tax, I, I opened the tax code and it's like in Chinese. There's just, I don't understand. It's, it makes reference to all different sections and nothing makes any sense. It's incomprehensible. How do I start? dissecting this at the really deep level. So he said, oh, you know what? There's this BNA tax portfolios where experts in tax analyze the law and explain it. And we're about to get rid of our 2008 books because we're buying the 2009 ones and they always throw them away and shred them. So I'm just going to bring them home. So he brought them home and I read the internet, the entire BNA 2008 international tax portfolio. And then in 2009, I launched my firm. And one thing that happened, and this is where events and coincidences can be really helpful when you're at the right place at the right time. I opened my tax firm to do international tax at the time where the UBS scandal broke out in the U.S. And the first offshore voluntary disclosure program was started at the end of 2009. And so I had all this theoretical knowledge (laughs) that was really that nobody had, even though they had a lot of practice and issues. So I started to work with a lot of international tax attorneys doing the tax compliance piece of all these people that were coming through the offshore voluntary disclosure programs to become U.S. tax compliant and U.S. foreign offshore reporting compliant. So it was like, It was on steroids. It was learning on steroids because I had exposure super early to really complex stuff, basically because there wasn't anybody with the expertise. So since there was nobody who was an expert, I was at the same level of people that had been in the career for decades. And I had a lot of exposure to all kinds of problems, and that allowed me to become really good in international tax a lot faster than it would have been if I had gone through a traditional path. Interesting. Interesting. And and so... You had mentioned as well, at some point you you opened and ran a tax practice as well. So when did that part come about? So I started my tax practice in 2009. And then in September of 2009, as well with the first <laughs> offshore voluntary disclosure program became available through the IRS. It was created by the IRS. So I was a solo tax practitioner. I have my own 
tax practice. And I mostly did work, as I said, for international tax attorneys. Then in mid-2010, we, I was living in Miami at the time. In mid-2010, I we moved to Philadelphia. And I had also some local clients that I was doing regular tax because I wasn't really thinking of focusing on the international necessarily. I also wanted to help uh, immigrants. But when I moved and I left Miami, what happens is that clients tend to be sticky at the time. And now it's a lot less than, than it was then to the local tax preparer. So I ended up transferring the clients, the majority of the clients to local friends that I had that were in the profession. But the ones who had international issues or were expats, they didn't care where I was because they were not local anyway. They so they were right, right, right. right. So they wanted to keep working with me. And whether I was in Philadelphia or Miami, it was irrelevant. They, they didn't matter. It didn't make a difference. And so that's why I said, okay, this is actually good because now I know that this can be location independent. I don't care where I am. My husband works for a big four firm, so he would transfer from one office to another, which was a big problem when I was in the corporate finance world working for companies because I had to like beg for a transfer to the branch in the next country or the next state. Right. And you always have to start from the bottom of the, once you prove who you are and you start earning the trust and you have some freedoms and some flexibility, you got to start from the bottom again. It was really exhausting. And now I had something that was completely location independent. And I said, oh, right. this is where, what I need to do. And then, and the technology was getting better that allowed it to do it, right? So it's the confluence of the technology allowing that, which was not easy to do before. And the fact that it was a really good fit for my lifestyle. Interesting. And, and at some point, I think you, you picked up a enrolled agent designation along the way as well, right? Yes, I did right away. I When I decided I was going to open my tax firm, I wanted to be an enrolled agent because that allowed me to, if you were an enrolled agent, it was easy to obtain the electronic return originator, which is the what you need to have in order to be able to file tax returns electronically. And so I decided that I was going to do it. Remember, by then I had been studying tax as a hobby for almost seven years. So I bought the Glam, I think it was Glam preparation thing. I read it and I took my exam and, and two months later I was an enroll agent. Yeah. And I had explored before deciding to be an enroll agent, becoming a CPA. I had explored that, but CPA does, CPAs do a lot more than just tax. They do audit work and they do a lot of other stuff that I wasn't interested in at all. And the other thing that the CPA has that it was a negative for me is the, way, is the fact that it's a state license. So if I moved to another state, which was always happening with my husband, and I, would ha I wouldn't be a CPA anymore in the next state, and I would have to start from scratch probably by the time that I met all the requirements to be a CPA in that state and to get the CPA license again. So when I found out about the enroll agent, which I found out accidentally by going to an H&R blog to ask, is there a course that I can take to actually prepare tax returns professionally? I went to an H&R blog to ask that question. They said, oh, the, most, the best designation to do that is the enroll agent, but it's very hard. You won't be able to do it. So I went back home and I researched that and, and I downloaded that. I, I, I bought a course and two months later, I was an enroll agent. Then it's federal license, so that's the good thing about it, that if I move to another state, I'm still an enroll agent because it's under the um, Department of the Treasury. Interesting. So 
So this this aspect of the fact that you had a mobile lifestyle because you you moved as the family moved as your husband was was getting posted to different job opportunities the the constraint or need to be flexible around location it sounds like ended up being a pretty material factor for you in this journey because it it impacted everything from pursuing an EA because it wasn't state specific liking your international tax clients because they stuck with you even if you moved and relocated that really seems to kind of be a common theme that pulled together why you ended out on this particular path. Exactly. And also the share experience, because I was an immigrant and I also had been an expat because obviously we returned from London. We were back in the U.S. But if right. you think about it, not from a U.S. perspective, I'm an expat because I'm not living in my country of origin. So from an Argentinian perspective, I'm an expat. From a U.S. perspective, I'm an immigrant. So having that shared experience allows you to understand the issues better, to put yourself in the shoes of the client with empathy and to help them from a place of really understanding what the problems were because they are your issues. With my partner, it's the same thing. My partner in Switzerland, he was actually born in the U.S., and but then he grew up in Switzerland and then he came to the U.S. to work and he lived, I think, for nine years in New York City. And there he met his wife, who's Russian. She's Russian-American, so she's a U.S. citizen, too. They started having children. They decided that New York City and Wall Street wasn't really the best environment for the family. They wanted something more family-friendly, and so they moved to Zurich. And that's where they've been, I believe, for the last 10 years. So they also have that experience, having a multinational family, multilingual family. My children have three passports. I have three passports. It also allows you to better understand what the issues are. And also, because you've lived that, it, it allows you to deal with the complexity because what happens when you haven't had the experience and you see, why would I get into something that difficult if there are 300 million potential clients on purely domestic stuff and I don't have to deal with any of these headaches. So you live that and you understand what it is not to have the help. And so you're willing to make the extra effort to have the competence to help people in the situation. Help us understand the next stage of the journey. So you're, you're, you're now running this international tax practice, have found a segment of clients you can serve well, you've got the expertise, you got your EA, it's great because you can serve them no matter where you are, and they just kind of follow along because they're location independence as well. So at, at, at what point do the CFP marks show up and you start going down this financial planning path? So when I moved to Philadelphia in 2010, I lost at least half of my clients because they were in Miami. And so I had free time. And that's where I started to pay more attention to the issues of the bad tax advice, the bad tax outcomes that they were getting from advisors, financial advisors that were helping working with the clients. And I said, but this is, why did you do this? My financial advisor said to do that. Who is this financial advisor? The enemy. And so I started to start to learn, to do research about what a financial advisor was. And guess what I found, Michael? I found something that you had written. And I don't know if it was, uh, <laughs> I don't know if what, it, what newsletter it was. 
And through you, I became aware of this thing called Certified Financial Planner. So I started researching this and, and going to the CFP board's website, read what they, what they say it was. And I said, oh, my God, this is exactly what I want to do. Instead of helping my clients after they already messed up and clean up the mess, I can help them avoid making the mistakes by planning. So being in a future looking instead, because tax preparation is backwards looking. You're, you're explaining, you're telling a story to the government in the way that they ask you to do it through the tax return of what has already happened. But when you're a planner, you're looking into the future. And so I said, this is fantastic. I, that's what I really want to do. And so I did, I started to find out how I could study for that. And I did some research in Philadelphia and I found out a program through Temple University in Philadelphia that was run through Kaplan University, actually, with, in conjunction with Temple University. I wanted my classes to be live. So I took the course I want, I did it the hard way by going to the classes for an entire year because I want to go deep and I want to ask questions. Right. I could have skipped the tax because I, I was grandfather because I was an EA, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to understand how it's taught for planners. And and then I got my CFP in 2013. And so did you have a sense of what you were trying, like where you were going to go with getting the CFP certification? Like, did you have a vision of what the business was going to become? Or was that still part of the question mark of figuring out, like, I'm, I'm going to go get the education, but then I got to figure out what my what my business model is going to be and what I'm going to do with this thing. Yeah, I really didn't think that part through. And they don't teach it <laughs> part of the CFP course, unfortunately. They don't teach you what the options are. So I think I had the, at the time the idea that I was just going to do planning through my tax firm which you cannot really do, but I wasn't aware that you really cannot do at the time. But I didn't even have to think too long about it because, as I mentioned, my professor suggested to become a member of FBA. So at first I thought, I'm just going to read, but then I realized that I could contribute, even though I was just studying for my CFP at the time. And that's when I started getting offers to work with different firms that were cross-border financial planning firms for, or financial advisory firms. Two of them were RIAs, and the other one was abroad, but working with Americans in the country where they were located. And so it just happened, naturally, without me having to think about it. Right. So now, so now it makes a lot more sense in context, the kind of this, this journey of how it unfolded. You had spent the better part of 10 years building this tax expertise, this international tax expertise by being posted overseas and then building a tax practice and ending out with international tax clients because they were the ones that were going to stick with you while you were <laughs> traveling to various states as well. And, and all of that builds up to the point that by the time you're posting messages on Financial Planning Association message boards, you've actually already got a really deep level of, of tax expertise. Because, right. of all the, because of all the work that you've been doing along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Because the crash of the crash course of the OBDP programs were. And so the financial planners or the financial advisors that needed help with those issues recognized really quickly that I knew what I was talking about. They had probably been looking for a while for somebody to help them. Well, actually, they told me they've been looking for a long time. Well, I'd say, I'm, I'm assuming there's not a, you know, if you're, if you're a firm that has this specialization and is trying to find people to hire, I suppose the one caveat is, kind of hard to find other people to expand in the firm. And, you know, it takes like 10 years to train one as you went through with 10 years of training. So if you, 
if this is your specialization, you see someone who actually has the expertise, it's like, oh, yeah, we need to figure out how to get that person on board sooner rather than later. Yeah, and that's what happened. Interesting, which, which I, again, to me, makes an interesting point just from the, you know, the, the advisor career path sort of perspective of, you know, again, when you, when you, when you build some kind of, of specialization where you've got this sort of differentiation around your expertise, you can start creating a lot of inbound career opportunities that show up because literally you've, you've differentiated yourself and your knowledge in the marketplace. And there's not necessarily a lot of others that have that expertise. So it makes you very hireable. Right. So you're narrowing your pool of potential employers a lot, <laughs> but for those potential employers, you're like, a, you know, a diamond because they, they, they can't find that. It's very difficult to find, or they had to, to devote a lot of time developing a person with those skills, dedicated many years to do that. Right. I am wondering though, just you had this tax clientele already. You were you building out this planning expertise by by getting your education. Like wh- what was it that made you decide to take a job and affiliate with a firm as opposed to just saying, look, I'm I've already been running my own business and getting my own clients and doing this. I'll just, oh, apparently I can't run my planning fees through my tax practice, I guess I need this RIA thing, you know, it's at some point that shows up on the radar screen. But you could have just gone and tried to create your own RIA and start doing this alongside the, you know, the clients you'd already been developing. What what made you decide I want to go do this as a as a employee in another firm? So I didn't even know that I could start my, I didn't even know what an RIA was. So I couldn't imagine creating my own RIA if you don't even know what that is. So I hadn't thought about doing that. And the good thing also, because I would have realized how difficult it is and how many barriers of entry there are. So I was offered the opportunity to join. There were three firms that wanted to hire me. So I said, why not? These firms are already ongoing. It seems like perfect. And so I found one, it was, I had to decide between the three and one of them, they were fee only. They allowed me to work remotely. One of the others would have been impossible to do remotely with the third one. It was in a foreign country, so it was kind of not very clear how that would work. And so I, I chose to join that RIA and that's the one that had the U.S. Swiss specialization. That's when I started studying all the specific Swiss side of things and as I started to understand more about the business because I didn't know anything about the industry even. I was I was born and raised abroad. And then with my husband, we were living in foreign countries. I had only been living in the U.S. for, by the time that happened, for nine years. And I was doing tax. And so it wasn't a world that I was even aware of or I understood. So, But I, as I operated in that world, I started to understand the business. I started to study more. I started to listen to podcasts. I was listening to your podcast, to all kinds of podcasts, reading all kinds of books, learning how the business operates and starting to make my own, having to have my own view of how I wanted to serve clients or or my idea of what a business should look like. And so it wasn't until I had that clear that I decided that I wanted to have my own firm. Yeah. So then help, help us understand how this changed and morphed 
to the to the point that you know you're you're not an employee at another firm now you're out on your own so like what was that journey and and what shifted that you went from being in a firm to saying well now I actually do want to run my own RA hang, hang my own shingle so at some point with that other firm that I had joined even though I was paid as an employee I was really paying a fee for certain services that the firm was providing as I was running my own profit center so I had my own office. Everything was through my own budget. So my own equipment, my own office, my own travel budget, my own technology, my own everything. So I was already building my business within another business. And so that gave me a lot of experience and allowed me to make a lot of decisions. I, you know, oh, I would like to use this software because I think it's a lot better than the software that is provided by my platform. And and so I started doing certain things that way. I I team up with one of the advisors at the firm because we felt that there was the synergies there were going to be fantastic for the clients in terms of value, but also for us and opportunities for growth. I'm very collaborative by nature. And so working with as a team was something that I valued a lot, but the firm was going to build like silos. And so that was one of the things that didn't work out very well for me. And also the standard of care was different because I came from so much from the tax side. And on the tax side is so much thinking and anticipating tax issues or viewing tax opportunities. Oh my God, there's this like, there's thing that doesn't coordinate well with one system and the other. So I can maybe convert taxable income into tax free income. Those opportunities are not that easy to come by on the purely domestic side, but they come when you're combining two. And so I was super proactive in my approach, which is very different from the firm standard of care, which is being very responsive, but reactive. So the whole, like you, you wanted to do proactive tax planning and they, they wanted to just help clients be tax compliant as issues came up, but that meant you weren't really in there until the issue had already come up. Yeah. So what what started to happen is that I was servicing clients very differently from the rest of the advisors of the team. The fact that the other advisors at the firm, the fact that they were silos and they were more reactive than proactive and that I was already working as a team with somebody else. And so as I wanted to continue to grow that approach because I thought how good it was, it, it, the conflicts between the way the firm wanted to do things and the way that I wanted to do things, we, we started becoming more and more difficult to overcome. And so at some point I realized that, that I realized that it wasn't in anybody's best interest to keep trying to do what I wanted to do with that firm and that I should do it either with my own RIA or by finding another firm that I could join that would allow me to do it in the manner that I, I thought was the better way to do it. I think your, your story makes a, an, an interesting point. I feel like a lot of, a lot of advisors who, who run, you know, just who run firms and build firms don't realize about, you know, essentially like our, our industry's historical approach of, Kind of keeping advisors in siloed models and and sort of treating each one as its own independent profit center. You know, obviously, you understand like the the economics of of that. That you know, I well, I know all the advisors with our firm are going to be profitable because they generate their own revenue and they cover their own expenses. But I I think you put it really well in in highlighting like well in practice what basically happens when you do that is you're creating you know start your own advisory firm training wheels like a practice. <laughs> approach 
because you're already showing them how to run a business, how to operate it segmented and all the rest that it just doesn't take a big leap at that point when someone eventually gets the level of saying, you know, I, I think I could actually just do this on my own. And I actually am large enough with enough clients now that I would probably keep more of my dollars by doing this on my own and building my own infrastructure, finding someone else to work with than continuing to affiliate with the firm that I'm affiliated at. So as, as the firm owner, like best case scenario, your, your employees start negotiating and haggling with you to say, well, I want to, I want a bigger payout. I want more revenue sharing, I want more dollars of whatever it is. And you get all these challenges that start cropping up that you, you as the firm owner, I think you, you kind of end up digging your own grave to some extent by setting up the structure this way, because it sort of inevitably ends out exactly where you did. Well, I think that it's very difficult for business owners to make the decision to jump between a, from a practice to a business. And so some of them take an approach that they think it's like a hybrid. So I think I'm jumping to a business, but I don't want to really make the investment of time to develop the infrastructure and that the, the investment of money to to build the team. So what I'm going to do is just I'm going to bring other advisors onto my firm and let them do their own thing with with very basic guidance. And then that's how I'm growing my business. And I'm thinking that I'm building a business, but you really are just doing some different silos that are all independent practices and working under a bigger umbrella. And just to me, so setting up for that inevitable moment when eventually that advisor gets large enough and sizable enough that they can start doing the math on how much they're spending for sort of your platform offering and saying, well, I, I think I could hire my own employees and do that. Or I think I could quote, find another platform that would do this at, you know, a lower cost or a better arrangement or have some, some other distinction that makes this more appealing for me. Yeah. So in my case, it wasn't a matter of cost. It was a matter of being, having the, what I felt was the solid foundation that I needed to build the business the way I wanted so that I could devote the time on the things that where I was really skilled, that I could really create value. I was spending a ton of time doing operations work because when you're a silo, you have to do everything. Yep. And I am not good at typing. So for me to have me typing up Schwab forms and then spending 10 hours on the phone with Schwab to find out what the heck happened with my account application international because the, the passport copy, because once international is a lot more AML that they have to do. So it's not right. easy to open the account. And so you have to spend, you know, I would be spending more than half my time doing admin stuff. And so that was an opportunity cost to me to build a business and I'm sure you're familiar with Stephanie Bogan's below the line and above the line. It was a below the line task that really drained my energy and didn't create any revenue for me, which is the only way I could feed myself. And so it, it was just, it was a bad situation and I needed to be in an environment that I could outsource. I felt I needed in order to do what I wanted to do and to really focus my my time on the things that I can do best to help clients. I need to be able to outsource the operation, which is something that I couldn't do where I was, and to have better technology that would allow me to either outsource the investment management, the investment administration of the portfolios outright, or to do it more efficiently because we were managing the investments, the clients' portfolios at the household level with multiple layers of tax, 
you know, restrictions. And, and if you don't have technology, you have to do everything manually by dr- downloading it to an Excel spreadsheet. You're spending countless amount of hours on something that you can do in 10 minutes if you have Eclipse and Orion. But you have to spend 15 hours because you have to download it directly from Shroud Advisor Center onto an Excel and then do all the calculations manually. So what, like when you decided you were going to go out on your own and, and do this and break away and, and as you noted, like, but still more inclined to outsource or find partners than, than just literally build your own, all of your own stuff from scratch. Like, what did you do in practice? Like, how did you, how did you actually make the transition? Well, actually, I, I wanted to start my own RIA. I wanted to do that. I thought that's what I wanted to do. Actually, I wasn't sure what I wanted. So the first thing I did is I hire a business coach. And so one of the podcasts that I listened to regularly was From Here to Success from Steve Sandusky. And I thought that his questions were very insightful and what he presented was insightful. And, he, and I thought that he had the right skills to help me figure out what was the best way to transition out. So I started working with him and evaluating the different options. And so we decided, oh, yes, having my own RIA was the ideal path for me. For, for the type of control that I wanted to do to have and for the, how I wanted to build my business. The problem was that I didn't have a business. <laughs> and so when, when you're dealing with international, you have to be multi-custodian and custodians need minimums to establish the relationship. Uh. And when you are at the bare minimums, you are with the lowest level of service and to deal with international issues, you need the highest team to deal with. And so it was going to be in practice to do it. It was going to be extremely difficult. So I was probably going to replace the problem of not being able to do the investment management more efficiently and the operations more efficiently or having to deal with all the complexities of an RIA. So I would end up with the same problem, not being able to, it was a different type of problem, but not solving the issue of having the time to be delivering value and the specific cross-border planning skills that I had for my clients. Okay. So, so what becomes the alternative then? You have to find someone else to, to tuck into or to affiliate with so you can, you can leverage their, the size of their relationship to get onto the higher level service teams with Schwab. That's right. With Schwab and, and, and Schwab isn't enough. We need to have multiple custodians because our clients sometimes start in Switzerland, but then they move to a third country and they want to keep working with us. So we do have clients in other countries that are not Switzerland. We have clients in Hong Kong. We have clients in South Korea. We, have, we used to have clients in China. Now they're back in the U.S. So that happens. And so when they move, the custodian might not be able to keep the account. Because they're not, they oh. don't have, they, there's a restriction, there's a country restriction. So it's a restricted country, and now you have to find another custodian. So we need to have at least two. And we thought, ah, oh, we can have Schwab and Pershing or Schwab and Fidelity, for example. We were working with Schwab and Interactive Brokers at the other firm, where Interactive Brokers is just not really very good on the advisor side. And so if we could avoid it, that would have been, that's really what we wanted to do. Then the conclusion is, okay, let's find another RIA that where you can plug in and see and make sure that they're aligned with how you want to run the business and they would be a good partner. Because even though I wasn't aware how hard it is to, to move from one firm to another, I knew that it wasn't something that I wanted to have to do again. So I wanted to do my due diligence and find the right partner. 
But a barrier that I found very quickly is that most RIAs don't want to have anything to do with having an investment advisor representative in a foreign country. And so a lot of people that were super interesting about the potential and the model, and they really believe that we can deliver and we can create something very successful. The moment we said, well, my, my partner is based in Zurich, I, never mind. <laughs> you already had the relationship with, with Jeff at this point. So you were coming to the table with, oh, by the way, and I've got this foreign partner who's also going to have to be under the structure because he's got the investment expertise and is going to be a key part of the advisory fees we're charging. Right. Because at, at first I decided, well, I need to start in another niche, right? I saw if I was going to stay with U.S. Switzerland, which I wanted to because I already have all this knowledge and I felt, I really felt sincerely that nobody could do it better than I could because I had invested so much time about really, really being really good at what I do and 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 giving and providing services to my clients with a really high standard of care, I needed a Swiss connection because that's not natural to me. And if I wasn't working with somebody off the ground, I was going to lose that ability to develop the Swiss side of the network, you know, the Swiss attorneys, the Swiss tax advisors, the Swiss insurance agents, the Swiss mortgage brokers that you need to, that we have on the U.S. side when we want to help our clients on this end. And also the ability to research the things that come up that because tax laws don't change just in the United States or securities laws don't change just in the United States. They also change in Switzerland. And so for me, it was critical if I was going to stay in this niche to have a partner base in Switzerland. Otherwise, I was going to do something completely different if that wasn't part of the plan. Okay. And so your challenge at this point, like you found the partner, but then none of the RAs you were talking to wanted to deal with your partner. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it was actually thanks to you that I ended up finding the perfect match in the RIA world in Phoenix, Arizona. One of the things that I love to do is I love to walk and hike. So when I walk and hike, one of the things I do is I listen to audiobooks. I switch between listening to music when I don't want to think about anything or I listen to audiobooks or I listen to podcasts. So I was listening to one of your podcasts and I think it was probably around January, I don't remember exactly, this year and you had a guest called Stephanie Bruno. And she starts telling her story and even though she didn't have the international side of it, a lot of the things that she went through were exactly the path was so similar and I felt that I was living her story through the way she was telling it in your podcast. And then she said she hired a coach and she started exploring the options. She wanted to start her RIA, but she thought if she would be overwhelmed and it would be too much. And either, I don't remember if it was her coach or somebody told her, well, this actually this firm. At that time, I think she was based in Arizona. Or maybe she was in Colorado. I'm not sure. Uh, there's this firm in Arizona that you can outsource all the parts that you don't want to deal with, operations, compliance, portfolio administration, and plug in with them. So why don't you contact them? And she spoke so highly of what they were providing for her, and it felt that it was exactly what I was looking for. So after listening to the podcast, I came like almost like running back home <laughs> to look them up and to click on the, in your show notes, to click on the link and to call them, and I left them a voicemail. And it took them close to a month to reply to the voicemail. 
And then we, <laughs> we started, because I think they were overwhelmed with all the inquiries that they were getting because of, of that podcast. I'm not sure, but it took a while. But they finally called me back and they wanted to learn more about what I was planning and what, what my background was and what I was thinking of doing. But I said, before we get any further, I need to tell you, I have a partner in Switzerland, and if that's going to be a problem, let's not waste anybody's time. Yeah, but if that's a deal breaker, <laughs> let's just get that out of the way right now. Right, right. And so, surprisingly, they said, no, actually, we want to grow internationally. We see the opportunity that it is. We think that the U.S. financial system is so much better than foreign financial systems that we can provide something really competitive to foreign investors. And so we want to explore that. And so they were already talking with a firm, I think in China also. And so they had the interest. And so that was the perfect match. And so we started working on all the details. And then it was a matter of working out the details and deciding when it would be the right time to, to make the jump. And it was the, the pandemic is what kind of ended up accelerating that. But and so, what was the name of the the firm for you know folks who are listening now want to go <laughs> find more find out more about this? Yeah, so the name of the firm is Dynamic Wealth Advisors. And so they take care of our operations, the mid office, compliance, and the portfolio administration. That's what they do for us. So obviously, we pay a higher fee than we were paying before at the RIA because they do more, but they do the things that we what we need them to do, and they're doing using that technology that we wanted to use that before we didn't have available. Because you're on, now you're on Orion using Eclipse. Exactly. Orion, Eclipse, Salesforce for the CRM. We didn't have a CRM at all before. And we use Advisor for financial planning, which is incredibly what we were using before. I was a beta tester of the financial planning software Advisor. It was so basic at the beginning. But with the, with the cross-border issues, no, no software really works. You still have to do a lot of things manually in Excel. So what I was looking for when I decided to work with Advisor was ease of use for the client, a clean, clear interface for the client that could be like the hub where we can keep track of the, the path of the wealth of our clients, what are the financial planning tasks that we're taking care of, and we, where we have a, the client vault with all the, the, the documents that are important. And so that's really more what it does. Although we use it for some projections, we have to tweak things because it doesn't calculate foreign tax credits. Right. No, but no software does. Even if you, you're with Imani or the most sophisticated planning software, they're not going to do that. None of the software has multi-currency. So you're still going to have to do things manually, no matter what software you have. Might as well have one then that is super easy to use for the clients. And so that that allows you to have a higher percentage of adoption from the clients. So it's better for the firm. For, for us, it is better to do that. And so it sounds like functionally, because you mentioned being an IAR, like functionally, what Dynamic Wealth Advisors is actually the RIA you're an IAR under them and, and under their compliance, but you get to create a DBA for running your own segment of the business so that you can do what you do with Jeff internationally. Is that the structure? Exactly. Yeah, that is exactly what the structure is. Okay. So they really were super flexible in working with us to find a way that it would allow us to be successful that also benefited them. And so when we reach out to them, 
to outsource these things, there were other benefits that we weren't even aware that we were going to have. The, the possibility of potentially teaming up with other advisors under the platform for particular projects where our U.S. Swiss cross-border expertise is needed for clients that they have. They are also, what I like in the portfolio management side is that they're looking for ways to innovate. And that's a that's a mentality that I have, a mindset that I have. And so, for example, they are now implementing ESG portfolios, which is, by the way, something that was really important for us working with younger clients. And my partner has a college degree is in environmental economics. So he had a, a big interest in everything, anything that everything that is ESG is a lot more advanced in Europe. The adoption it happened a lot earlier in Europe than is happening here. So we had already some ESG portfolios that Jeff had built, built when we were working at the other RIA, but here he was able to work with all the tools that they have, a dynamic to really improve the portfolios and create our own ESG models. And those are the ones that are the most popular for clients. And now Dynamic is doing their own ESG models. I would imagine that they would use more mutual funds and things that maybe we're going to use for the clients who are abroad. And the other thing that they're starting to look into is direct indexing, which for me as a tax person, I am super interested in that. And so that would allow us to, if we have higher net worth clients to provide and that are going to be more tax sensitive to really provide a lot more tax efficient portfolio. So there's a lot of things that I did, wasn't aware that were also going to be benefits from this that are also part of what we are enjoying and it's allowing us to grow. We're, we're doing really well. We're so happy. And so it's going very well, even though we haven't, like I said, we just hit the, run, the, the ground running and it's been like five months only since we've been doing this. And how does the cost structure work with a, with a firm like, like Dynamic Wealth Advisors? I mean, you, you pay them a platform fee, you pay them a percentage of revenue or some number of basis points. Like, how, do, how does that actually work? particularly since you have a lot of non-AUM, just minimum fee clients. Yeah. So most of our clients, about 95%, we do have AUM with them, okay. even though they might be smaller amounts. So very few of our clients are financial planning only in the end, because eventually they realize that it's better for them if we manage their IRAs or smaller accounts that they might have. So we pay an AUM. The fee is based on AUM that we pay to Dynamic, and we also pay a technology fee. And we also, because we wanted a higher level of uh, operation support, we pay a concierge fee. So the concierge fee is, fee is a fixed fee that we pay a month to have a person that is can interact directly with our clients. We believe that creates a lot more efficiency because it's somebody who knows their system. So it's on both sides of the, so on our side of the process and on their side of the process, there's a lot of efficiencies of that. So we, we are asking to provide that. We pay a technology fee for the access to all the technology that they provide. And then the AUM fee, that is a regressive AUM fee. So as we grow the fee. The next tier gets cheaper. Exactly. Coming. Exactly. Yeah. So, so can you give us a sense of just h- how these add up for you? Uh, I mean, like, is it, are we talking about like 10 basis points of AUM fees? Or are we talking about 30 basis points of AUM fees? It's like a hundred dollar tech fee or a thousand dollar tech fee. Like what is, what does this add up to for you? It's a lot less than if we have to pay for the technology fee it would be a lot less than if we have to 
get the technology on our own because okay. we have the discounts. Because basically, there's a big RIA, so they can get the the technology at a big discount. So we pay whatever fee it is that they pay for, you know, 88 advisors using the technology, right? And so that that allows us to, to whatever would if something would cost, I don't know, two hundred and fifty dollars per user per month. Maybe we're paying one twenty five. So it really depends on what you. There's a menu of tech. There's a basic technology fee, and then there's a menu that builds on top of that that you can add. Like if you want, you can use Riskalyze, but you don't have to. Or if you want to, I don't know, have advisor stream or about engines and additional fee, but you don't have to. But that's offered to us at the discounted rates. And with respect to AUM, it's more than 10%. It starts, but we're just starting out. Remember, we were just doing that. So we're very small now. So we're at the higher percentage. Right. But as we grow, I think that when we get to 100 million, then it drops to single digits. And so that's really the carrot for us to get to 100 million because then that allows a lot of efficiency for us on the cost side and will increase our profitability for obviously they're making an investment on us too. So while we're growing, they have a much higher AUM percentage fee than when, when, when we're larger. We both believe that this is going to be successful. So we're hoping that we can get there pretty soon. So what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business as you've gone down this path? How oh, it's difficult. <laughs> it didn't surprise me because I already done it on the tax side and I was already doing it within the other firm. It's just so many decisions that have to be made. And I don't know if it's a surprise. I kind of was expecting it. It ended up being harder than I expected, but I was expecting it to be hard. So what one of the things that I've been doing is I was building my support team. So I had my business coach, like I mentioned. I had my partner in the business, as I mentioned. I joined the advisor growth community for a community to provide support, and that's been phenomenal. There's so many things that you have to take into account that you really need to be well prepared because it takes a while. It's a huge investment. We have to hire attorneys in the U.S. and in Switzerland you know, all kinds of, you have to set up the companies in the U.S. And it's just, a, it's a huge investment that you have to do at the beginning. When you're doing cross-border, it's much larger than when you have to do it domestically. And then you have to wait the business to, for the business to trickle in. So what I had told my partner is we need to be prepared and not be able to pay ourselves a salary for two years. And then if we achieve the results faster, and it looks like it's going to take a lot less than that, then that's fantastic. But we need to be prepared for not being able to take a penny of salary for two years because it might take that long to be able to do that. So what was the low point on this career journey for you over the past decade? For a while, Michael, when I finally understood that the firm where I was at before I made this transition wasn't the right place to me for me, I thought that most likely what I would do is I would abandon the industry altogether and go back to tax. And that was really hard for me because I enjoyed so much the work, working with my clients. The work that I did with my clients was the joy of my life. And I wanted to continue to do it, but I just didn't see the path to do it. I didn't think it was possible. It was also kind of like, inferred or that was kind of the message that was receiving from a lot of people, you won't be able to ever do it. It's not possible. So I kind of let other people define what was possible for me. 
And that was a really low point. So when that happened, I decided, I actually, I need to take control of my destiny. And let me determine whether I can do this or not and not let others decide it for me. And so in the moment that I made the decision and I started building my support team and building my savings, I stopped taking uh, any salary. So I, everything was going to a savings account that it was going to fund the business. That is when I started to emerge from the low point. But then the actual transition in April when that happened, having to resign and not being able to tell the clients what was happening because of legal restrictions. And and that was really, and then the pandemic on, on top of everything, making things 10 times harder than it had to be. That was really hard emotionally. And I don't think that I wouldn't been able to do it if I didn't have the support of my family, the support of my partner, business partner, the support of my friends, the support of colleagues that had the same type of mindset that I have, that had done similar things that had been successful. And if I hadn't listened to others like you that are so generous sharing your knowledge to show us the paths and the ways that this can be done, I don't think I could have done it. But so it was difficult to do it, and it's still difficult because we're still building it, but now it's super exciting because it's, it's going so well. I think we're onboarding six clients this month. People are finding us, and we don't even have a website up yet because that's still in, in development process. So it really confirms that it was the right decision, and if you are prepared and you understand how hard it's going to be, anybody can do it. If I can do it, anybody can do it with that determination. So what do you know now about running and building an advisory business that you wish you could go back and like, tell you from six or seven years ago when you were first getting your CFP marks and, and coming into the financial advisor world? Why do I know now? I didn't know anything <laughs> seven years ago. So what happens is when you don't know something, it looks a lot easier. You know, what other people are doing always looks easy and we, I think as humans, we have, we tend to really think that what we do is difficult and what we, we're the only ones who work hard because we do not see what's not visible, right? You only see the visible part of anything. What surprised me is really understanding what an investment it is to get an independent advisory firm off of the ground and, and get it to the point of profitability and how much work it requires. I didn't have a clue about that. And I would have done maybe things a little bit differently, but I think things happen at the time they need to happen. And so maybe emotionally I would have been ready earlier, but really on the experience side, I wouldn't. It really, it took me a really long time to understand what the options were. And even when they were explained to me, there were things that were, that were not that clear. I almost got to the point of signing a contract with a, with a big RIA. And then I found, and I said, oh, let me see if in the, under this platform, there's anybody I know. And there happened to be somebody very close to me. And I met with her and I started asking questions. And a lot of the things that they were promising were not happening. And so even when you do a lot of due diligence, you can still make mistakes because things that appear to be a way and they may not end up being the way. That happened also even with Dynamic, even though the experience has been great because they're working with us to make sure that we're both successful. They didn't have the experience with the international. So a lot of the processes that they thought were going to be easy ended up being very difficult and us having to invest, you know, five, 10 times. It's not 10% more. No, 1,000% more to make it work. 
And that's the part that is hard to see and that's hard to understand when you haven't done it. So what advice would you give to a, a newer advisor that's career changing into the financial advisor world? The things that I wanted to bring about that we didn't have the chance to talk is that you don't see a lot of people like me in the industry. So I don't know that I can give advice to any everybody's in general because everybody's experience is so different. But I would like to give advice to people like me because they don't see, perhaps they don't see themselves as somebody who can own a business to help them understand that if that's what they want, that they can do it. And But that doesn't have to be what they want. There are so many different ways that you can provide services in this business that can be fulfilling and create value for clients and, and help you to achieve your personal goals. So an advice that I would give to everybody, for everybody is just understand what's your own power and then act, take agency and take ownership of your own power and then act in a way and take advantage of all the fabulous, generous people who out, are out there like you sharing this information and providing it for free. Just listen to all these podcasts. I used to just listen to all these different podcasts, and I have learned so much about the business, not not so much from working, but from learning from the experience that other people share in podcasts. And there's yours, because I like to learn about investments. I listen to Invest Like the Best, Between Now and Success, to Mindy Diamond, The Perfect RIA, where they Matthew Jarvis and Micah Shalansky, they talk about how to be hyper-efficient. And they're also, what I like about them is they're also very tax-focused, which is what I am. And so you can learn a lot by listening to other people. Don't try to do that. this by yourself would be my advice. And so spend the time to really understand what you like to do and how you like to operate. And then listen to, and then go and search for the knowledge and find the way that is the right path for you. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the things that always comes up is, I mean, just the word success means different things to different people. So I know you've gone through a lot of changes. As you said, I think this was your, your fourth stage of, of career changing through the journey and, and you know, now building the successful practice with a, with a really cool focused niche. But I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I have the word that matters the most to me, which is equity and equity in the sense of equal access to opportunity. So I consider success is if I help to reduce inequity or I help to improve equity in a sense of allow other people to have access to things, to allow others to have access to opportunity, to ensure that we all have the same access to opportunity so that we can all be empowered to live the lives that we want to be, to live. And so for me, success is when I am able to help others empower themselves. And that's what, that's why I love a profession so much because I see the power of financial planning and wealth advisory services and in, in opening the eyes of our clients into opportunities that then the self-censor and they decide I cannot afford to do this. And so we can empower them to think bigger about what their life can be. And we have all the technical knowledge that allows them to achieve that path as tax efficiently and more financially efficiently as possible. But the value is in the sense that we allow them to be more empowered. And so for me, success is allowing to empower others and to have a positive impact 
on others and to pay it back in the way that others have opened the path for me, I believe success is when I make the path easier for other people. If it was hard, if something was hard for me, then I wanted to make sure that it's easier for somebody else. And, and that's why I have the Cross-Border Planner and the Cross-Border Academy, because I, when I was living in London, there was nothing to help that. So I want to have a, a, a resource available for people that I didn't have when I needed it. I'm the type of advisors that I am because this is the advisor that I would like to hire for myself. <laughs> that's what defines my standard of care. That's how I define success. Did my presence in the world make the world a little more equitable than it was if I hadn't been around? I love it. I love it, Marina. Thank you so much for you know, joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast and, and sharing the story. I hope, it, uh, I hope it helps some other advisors out there going through some similar challenges, maybe find their, their path a little bit more open and easy. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. It's a privilege for me to be here. And thank you for all you do for all of us in the profession, because you helped me find my answer and my path. And so I hope I can do something similar, at least for one more person. So thank you for having me. I know. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.